So our Bible verse this morning is from Daniel chapter 10 through to Daniel 11, verse 1. You can follow along on the screen or it's in your Bible on page 894. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, and his eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my knees, hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you, and stand up, for I've now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have gained, given me strength. So he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the Prince of Persia. And when I go, the Prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the Book of Truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your Prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Beck, for reading that for us again. 
Um, isn't it wonderful to be able to uh, sit under God's word together and uh, to meet together as a community and to serve the Lord uh, together here on a Sunday? Sundays are really great days for uh, connecting again and for fellowshipping and for encouraging each other and we need that desperately in the world that we live in today. Well, let me just pray, and uh, it's good to see you all. Let me just pray and uh, ask God to help us as we look at this, this, this chapter. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word again. Uh, you are gracious and kind to give us this book, which we can read. Uh, you've uh, put that together over 2,000 years, and yet it has, with many different authors, and it has this wonderful, consistent message centred on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much that you've revealed... Uh, yourself to us, that we can be reading your word now and uh, help us, Lord, to understand it, help me to preach it well, so that uh, we might be edified and you might be glorified as we meet together in this way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the second half of the book of Daniel, and remember the first six chapters were all stories from Daniel's life, and then the second half of the book, the second six chapters, record four visions Four visions that Daniel received throughout his life. And here in chapters 10 to 12, we have this final vision that Daniel receives. Chapter 10 is actually a, a prelude or a preface to that final vision, which actually starts in chapter 11 and 12. And so before Daniel receives a prophetic vision, he actually receives a heavenly vision in chapter 10. And it's as if a curtain has been drawn back for a moment and we get a glimpse into an unseen world of spiritual beings and spiritual warfare. Now, we don't tend to think about that a lot, do we? We sort of live in a concrete world with things we can touch and feel. And we don't often think about spiritual beings and spiritual warfare. And that's probably a good thing. But it doesn't make it any less real, does it? Think about a play on a stage. There's often a lot going on behind the scenes in a play. You know, there's a lot of activity, setting up props, makeup, costumes, and so on. And while you're watching the play, you don't often think about what's happening behind the scenes. And in the same way, we're often sort of ignorant about what's happening in the unseen world. But it doesn't mean it's not real or that it isn't massively important. Abraham Kuyper, he was a level-headed Dutchman like myself and a very gifted theologian. Uh, he also became Prime Minister uh, of the Netherlands in 1901. This is what he said. Have a look at the, the, what I've written on the, on the screen there. If once the curtains were pulled back and the spiritual world behind came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there, that is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle just drones in its backlash. Here in chapter 10, we have this curtain pulled back to give us a glimpse of the scene behind the scene, or rather the scene above the scene in the heavenly realms. Let's have a look at the passage then and see what we can learn from it. First, let's have a look at this 
uh, this conflict behind the scenes. Here's Daniel. He's now an old man in his 80s and he's been praying for three weeks. And as he's praying, a glorious visitor, messenger, visits Daniel. Look at verses 5 and 6. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and legs like, like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Who is this messenger? Now, scholars have debated this uh, a fair bit over the, over the years, whether this is an angel or whether this is the pre-incarnate son of God. And the reason some people think it might be the pre-incarnate Son of God is because of the remarkable similarities between this description and what we read in Revelations chapter 1. It could almost be the same person, sort of flaming eyes, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like the sound of the MCG or the Adelaide Oval these days. But I'm not sure it is Jesus because we're told in verse 13 that the Prince of Persia resisted him for 21 days. And we're also told that he depended on the help of Michael, the archangel. So can the powerful son of God be resisted? Does he need someone to help him? <clears throat> and in verse 11, the messenger says, <clears throat> I've been sent to you. Now, this messenger is probably the angel Gabriel, who crops up in Daniel 9, uh, as, uh, as explained last week by Scott, in answer to the prayer there. But just think, if this is an angel, how great must Jesus be? How great must our Lord Jesus be? If one angel can terrify the men with Daniel and bowl Daniel over so he drops down dead, can you imagine what it will be like when Jesus comes with all his holy angels? Can you imagine what that'll be like? The book of Revelation tells us on the day that Jesus returns, the unconverted will rush to the hills and call upon the rocks and mountains to fall on them and hide them. From what? Do you know what it says? What, what from are they so terrified? From the face of the Lamb. The face of Jesus on the day of judgment, if you're unconverted, will be more terrifying than a tsunami or an earthquake or a volcano. You'd rather face that than come face to face with Jesus whom your sins have crucified. And the only place to be when Jesus comes back is to shelter in the cross where he paid for our sin. But now there's a conflict in these heavenly places and the angel tells Daniel about the battle with the prince of Persia. Look at verse 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And then in verse 20 we read, Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Now, who is the prince of Persia? Is it Cyrus? No, he's actually the king of Persia. And we see that in verse 1. Cyrus is described elsewhere in the Old Testament, of course, as the Lord's anointed the servant of the Most High, used by God to set the people of Israel free from captivity in Babylon, return them to Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and the temple. So who is this prince of Persia? And who is Michael, the chief of princes? 
Now, if you look at verse 21, Michael is described as your prince, plural. So he's not Daniel's personal guardian angel, but the prince of God's people, the guardian angel of God's people. So, see, we're in a spiritual realm here, aren't we? This is the unseed world of angels and demons, principalities and powers behind the scenes. And Michael is one of God's angels, one of God's chief princes. He's referred to as the archangel in Jude 9. And the princes of Persia and Greece are fallen angelic beings behind the Persian and Greek empires. And here in verse 13, we're told that the prince of Persia does battle with Daniel's messenger angel. And Michael, the archangel, actually helps fight against him. So there's a conflict in the heavens. It's not flesh and blood, is it? It's not human leaders or world empires or ideologies or even idols. It's the spiritual forces behind them. It's the principalities and powers. It's the angelic and demonic beings at war in the heavenly realms. No wonder Daniel was terrified. And the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Ephesians 6 verse 12, that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, we might think that our battle, daily battle, is with the idols that tempt us away from trusting in God. You know, consumerism, individualism, wealth, family, freedom, sport, you name it. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 19. He says, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. See what he's saying? When people serve and worship idols, whatever that idol may be, it's not the idols they're serving, they're nothing, they're just things. But behind the idols are demons. That's who you're really serving. Demons know that idols are nothing. But they also know that idolatry will destroy you and dehumanise you and enslave you and drag you away from serving the living God. What is true for idols is also true for ideology, isn't it? Do you think uh, that uh, Hitler was just a man with a different opinion? He sent six million Jews to the gas chambers. You can't tell me that's not demonic, that there's not something behind the scenes there. And Karl Marx was once a believer, but in his teenage years he wrote to his father, he said, a curtain has fallen, my holy of holies is rent asunder and new gods have to be installed. Not long after that, he wrote a ballad called The Pale Maiden and in it he writes, thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well, my soul once true to God is chosen for hell. Friedrich Engels, who was a friend of Karl Marx, who was a German philosopher, also began as a believer and after his first meeting with Marx, described him as a monster possessed by thousands of devils. We need to realise that behind the isms and ologies, there's a war being waged for the minds and hearts of human beings. 
And Paul reminds us of that, doesn't he, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, that when we preach the gospel, it's not an intellectual exercise in apologetics. It's not an exercise in clear communication. We're entering into a spiritual conflict, says Paul, for the souls of men and women. And what is our protection in this spiritual battle? Well, it's the gospel, isn't it? It's the armour of God, according to Paul in Ephesians 6. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. The gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation. If you want to stand and withstand the enemy, if you want to protect yourself in this very real spiritual conflict going on, you need to apply the gospel to yourself every day. All the time, to the way you think, to the way you feel, to the way you go, to what you do. Apply the gospel to yourself. So there's this spiritual conflict going on in the heavens, but while all this is going on, what's going on on earth? That's the second thing we see in this passage. God's man is praying, isn't he? It's the third year of the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Daniel prays. In fact, he gives himself to prayer, doesn't he? Look at verses 2 and 3. At that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. What is Daniel still doing in Babylon? Have you ever thought about that? See, Cyrus conquered Babylon three years earlier. He'd issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And this is what Daniel had been praying for, for years and years and years. Every day he opened his window to Jerusalem, remember, and prayed, pleading with God to reverse the captivity of his people. And three years ago it happened. And quite a few Jews had returned to Jerusalem. So why is Daniel still in Babylon? Why is he fasting and praying here for three weeks? Hasn't God kept his promise? He's returned the captivity of his people. Surely this is a time for celebration. The exile has ended. The people have returned to Jerusalem, celebrating God's great deliverance. Why hasn't Daniel returned? Why is he still in Babylon? Why is he giving himself to prayer? Well, it's Daniel's concern for his people. Why is he concerned for them? Because only a small number had taken the opportunity to return to Jerusalem after Cyrus's decree and uh, started work on rebuilding the city and the temple. The rest were quite happy to stay in Babylon. They enjoyed the comforts and the, and the lifestyle they had in Babylon. After all, it's been 70 years. And Jerusalem and the temple, well, you know, it's so far away and it seems so unreal now. And besides that, it seems like a lot of work. And that attitude was devastating to Daniel. It's tragic, isn't it, when God's people lose their first love? When the world comes into the church? When the people lose their love for Christ and their desire to serve him because they love the things of the world more? It's tragic. The church is supposed to be in the world. But when the world comes into the church, it's in big trouble, isn't it? And so Daniel stays in Babylon with them, even though he's busting to get back to Jerusalem. 
He stays with the unfaithful exiles who refuse to return and gives himself to prayer. But he's also concerned for those who have returned because they'd gone back to trouble. There's a strong local opposition to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the work had come to a standstill. There was all sorts of political interference happening behind the scenes. The devil was doing all he could to stop the city and the temple from being rebuilt and to stop God's plans from being fulfilled. And so Daniel prays and he prays and he gives himself to 21 days of prayer. And in the mystery of God's sovereignty... The praying of this old faithful old man reaches into heaven and changes the course of history. God sends this angel to reassure him, verse 12, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. What does that say to us? There's a spiritual battle engulfing this world. It's a battle for the souls of men and women. And as God's people, we are called to pray, aren't we? Samuel Nesdali wrote a book titled Among the Soviet Evangelicals. He grew up in Russia and he was a believer himself. And after the collapse of communism, he revisited one of the main sort of Baptist churches in Moscow. And he was intrigued to see several rows of old ladies dressed in black sitting together. And Nesdali asked, who are, who are they? And why are they sitting there together in those pews? And he's told, oh, those are the women who prayed communism out of Russia. Those little old ladies are on the front line, aren't they? on the front line of the spiritual battle. They're the real revolutionaries, aren't they? They prayed, they interceded, just as Daniel was doing here. There's a lovely story from the same era when a little church in Kiev was being badly persecuted and they complained to Khrushchev, who was at the time the governor of Ukraine. And to their amazement, he invited them to come to his office and uh, to put their case to him personally. And so they did. They carefully selected a delegation of people uh, with a good work record. Some were ex-servicemen and they made sure they wore their medals and they prepared what they were going to say. And at the meeting, Khrushchev listened to them very carefully and allowed them to present their case. And when they'd finished, he opened the desk, the, dr the desk drawer that he was sitting at and he pulled out an open Bible. And he read to them the passage where Jesus says, you will be handed over to authorities and persecuted. And then he said to them, do you believe that? And they said, well, well yeah, of course, yes, we do. And then he said, why did you come to me? You should have gone to him. Isn't that too often the case? That prayer is our last resort? We think of all the things we can do first, but the passage calls us to pray. Where are our prayer warriors? By the way, we've relaunched, Scott's relaunched uh, the church prayer network to help us to pray. Let's, let's sign up to that and, and get into it. People say, oh, I can't do much these days. I can't get out. At least I can do is pray. That's not the least you can do, is it? It's the best thing to do. 
It's the first thing we need to do. Let's, let's commit to be a praying church. There's a spiritual battle going on for the souls of men and women, and we are called firstly to pray. Now, the third thing we see here is the reassurance we receive. So where, where does all this get resolved? It doesn't really get resolved here in this passage, but this great spiritual conflict behind the scenes and the concerns we face on earth, which we pray about, where does it all get resolved? seems to be left up in the air here. How can we be assured of the final outcome? What assurance do we have that our prayers have been answered? How do we know that the powers of evil that hinder the work of the gospel won't ultimately prevail? Over and over again, Daniel reminds us that God is in charge. We've seen that right through this book. And that he oversees history for his purposes. And we have the privilege, of course of living this side of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that in the cross, the battle in the heavenly realms has been won. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There's no doubt whatsoever the war has been won. At the cross, Jesus won that decisive victory over the principalities and powers. The battle is over. The victory has been secured. We don't have to be terrified of the outcome. <clears throat> we don't have to be looking under our beds for demons or exercising territorial spirits. No, we are more than conquerors through the cross of Christ. We're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. And our labour in the Lord is never in vain, is it? The hard work you put into serving in church, as many of you do, I'm very thankful for that. The hard work of witnessing, speaking to your friends and neighbours is never in vain. Jesus has already won. Your prayers are all heard. Sure, the struggle isn't over yet, <clears throat> but the war is won, do you see? God is in charge of history and he's already told us, hasn't he, how it will end. All evil banished and a new heaven and a new earth. And this chapter also reminds us that we're not alone. But we're actually surrounded, do you know that, by God's glory. Daniel was at the river Tigris, wrestling in prayer for the good of God's people and his heart was breaking because of their backsliding. And he's totally shocked when this angel appears to him and draws the curtain aside to show him what's really happening. And we're sitting here in Mount Barker. Not inches away from us are angels. Angels who long to look into the things that we've been talking about. That's the reality of church here this morning. You know... Oh, boring old church, will I go today? It's been a hard night and uh, I've got stuff to do. Wake up to the reality, friends. We're told in Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That's what worship is about. Think of Elisha and his servant in two kings. When his servant got up and left the house, he saw this large army assembled on the hill surrounding the city. And he said to Elisha, Oh no, my Lord, what will we do? 
You remember what Elisha told him? Look at the text there. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's what happened to Daniel. So often we see Daniel, don't we, standing alone. And here all his friends have deserted him. But God pulls back this curtain and he becomes aware that he's not alone at all. And he was surrounded by God's glory. And so are we, no matter what we face. And thirdly, this chapter also teaches us that we are enabled by God's touch. You know, notice in the passage there, three times Daniel feels the touch of God through this messenger. A hand touched me, then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and then again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. We need that, don't we? We need it more than anything else. We need the touch of God. We desperately need the touch of God to be saved, to be strengthened to serve the Lord, and to stand firm against the devil's schemes. We need the touch of God for that. And it's only when we're conscious of our own weakness and need that we will know God's strength. You conscious of your own weakness and need? Well, do you pray? Because prayer shows that we are humbly dependent on God. And when we pray, God comes and strengthens us. Well, let me finish. Do you know how, how loved you are? Daniel 10 has given us a glimpse behind the scenes at this awesome reality of the unseen spiritual realm. As Hamlet says to Horatio in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There are things behind the scenes. God is doing things, 10,000 things with 10,000 angels for your sake and for, your, and for mine. And we, and we know nothing about them. And if we were to see it, it would be too much to bear. We'd be like Daniel, falling on our faces. And for all of us who know and serve Christ, this is heaven reassuring Daniel and us that we are so greatly loved that even angels go to war for us. And more than that, we are so greatly loved that God sent his son to die on a cross for us, to save us from our sin and to give us life. Do you know how loved you are? Hear the words of verse 19, ponder them. Don't be afraid, you who are highly esteemed or deeply loved. Peace, be strong. Be strong. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your life-changing word. Your word is light and joy and health to us. It reveals your majesty and glory and love to us. It tells us the way to be saved by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we do not need to fear the forces of evil working behind the scenes in this dark world because Christ has defeated them at the cross. Thank you that we're surrounded by your glory as your holy angels serve and protect us. Help us not to make too much of angels and demons, nor to diminish the reality of their existence. Help us rather to rejoice in Christ and the great salvation he has worked for us, which angels long to look into. And Father, may we be a church that prays. 
confidently praying all kinds of prayers in all kinds of circumstances, knowing that you love us dearly in Christ and hear and answer all our prayers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.